There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're here to study the book of Matthew chapter 8. So open your Bibles there, if you will. Matthew chapter 8. We've come through 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, considered the greatest sermon ever or speech even ever given. And so in chapter 8, uh, we saw some demon possession in uh, verse right around verse 16 or so. Let me just pull that thing off of there. Um, Demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. The backstory of Matthew, if you're here for the first time or haven't been here for a while, is that this is one of the four Gospels, obviously, which are the biographies of the Lord Jesus. They're each a little different because they're told from a different angle, a different perspective of what they saw and remembered. Matthew is proving his case, almost like a lawyer, that Jesus is the Messiah, the rightful king of Israel. He started in chapter 1 with his genealogy, both the human genealogy coming through the line of David on both sides, and then we learn he has a virgin birth, which is the God side of his being. Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully man. Then we saw that he has a forerunner, somebody announcing that he is the coming one that will save Israel. That's John the Baptist. We saw some hatred of Jesus before that with, the, uh, with Herod uh, ordering that all the children in Bethlehem under the age of two be slaughtered because he's trying to stop the king of the Jews. We saw Gentiles worship him in that chapter which were the Magi coming from the east. They had heard about his star, and they came to worship the new king. Interestingly, it's Gentiles in the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Having done all of that, then we saw his credentials as a speaker teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Incredible wisdom and the standards for Christian um, behavior. And if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 with an honest heart, you will admit, I can't do this. And that was his point. The high moral standard is there so that people will cry out and say, I need a Savior. In comes Jesus. But he has to make us aware of our need for that. Now, starting in chapter 8, he's going to show you that he has total power and authority. And in chapter 8, we saw all kinds of healings. There's a bunch in a row that occur, and of all sorts. We said that the common thing, if you notice, look at Matthew 8, chapter chapter 8, starting in verse 1. The first guy is a guy with leprosy. Do you see that? All of these people have something in common, we said last week. The man with leprosy is a total outsider. He can't be a part of... Worship, he can't go to the the synagogue or the temple, can't be around people. He has to yell unclean so people will stay away from him. Jesus heals that man and is willing to do so. Then there's a centurion who's a Gentile, an outsider in terms of the Jewish religion. He has such faith, Jesus is amazed um, uh, at his faith. Let's see, verse 10. The kind of faith he has is he's got a servant that's more like a son to him who's very uh, ill with a uh, with a paralysis of some kind. Look at verse 6 for that. 
Jesus offers to go and heal him, and the man says, no, no, I understand authority. You don't have to come to my house. You just say the word, long-distance, wireless healing. And he heals him. Amazing. And then, verse 14, he heals Peter's mother of a fever. You'll notice sometimes he speaks when he heals. Sometimes he says nothing and heals with a touch. Sometimes it's both. It's different every time. Matthew is making his case. This Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the King of Israel, the Messiah, the God-man, fully God and fully man, proving it by his authority over disease so far. Then in verse 16, more that were demon-possessed are brought. Uh, he drives out those spirits with a word and healed all the sick in verse 16, to fulfill a prophecy in Isaiah. So, verse 18, uh, we really left off right around verse 18. So, those of you that are here in person, so I know that you're awake, say, Amen. Amen. Okay, good. Those of you on Zoom, I can't hear you, but wave. I see Amen from Zoom land, somebody's sign. Beautiful. Okay, verse 18 uh, is where we're going to pick it up. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. That's kind of amazing to me. Most televangelists, most preachers, the bigger the crowd, the better. When he sees the crowd, he says, let's go to the other side of the lake. We got work to do there. Turns out there's something that has to be done and something that has to be accomplished on the way there. But he is not interested in big crowds just for the crowd's sake. Um, so he gives orders, we're going to the other side of the lake. They have a boat, one of the boats, and the other gospels tell us that other boats are going to go with them, like a little flotilla going across the lake. The lake is the Sea of Galilee. It's really more of a lake than it is a sea. They're on one side, they're going to go to the other side, which would be the east side. They're in Capernaum at this time. Verse 19, we, we talked about these briefly. Let's go over them. This is Jesus teaching on counting the cost of following him, verse 19. Then a teacher of the law, that's a scribe, Jewish authority on the Old Testament, came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Very self-confident, very bold assertion, right? Jesus replies, verse 20, notice he doesn't say, no, you can't come, or yes, join us. He says, I want you to understand what it means to follow me. And he says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Meaning Jesus is living his life trusting God for the most basic necessities. He doesn't have a house. There's a point in the Gospel of John where it says, I think it's chapter 7, and each one went to their own house, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Meaning, in a sense, he's homeless. He's got all kinds of friends that he can stay at Peter's house or John's house or whoever, but he's not concerned with uh, uh, that sort of thing. A scribe would be on the wealthier side of society, number one, an expert in the Jewish law. Number two, he would be, if he joined Jesus and the 12 apostles, he would probably be the most educated one and probably figures he's going to have a cabinet post when this guy becomes king. He hasn't counted the cost. He's too anxious, too quick. Jesus says what he says, and that's the end of it. You notice verse 21 is a different person. 
What's implied is maybe the guy didn't come along. He was too hasty. Guy number two, we'll call him, is in verse 21. Another, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me bury, go and bury my father. That's verse 21. Do you see that? I'm willing to follow you. First, let me bury, bury my father. In our culture, if someone said that, you would assume his father must have just died. The poor guy, let him do the whole burial for a few days and the memorial. He'll gather up his things and he'll follow. That's not what it means. Let me bury my father was a, a metaphor or a phrase that was used in that culture for, I can't follow you now until my dad passes away. He's, he's not saying his dad has died or his dad is ill. He's saying, I need the inheritance that I'll get when my dad dies. Then I'll be set financially. Then I can come. One guy is too anxious. The other guy is too hesitant. Now you can understand the need for the financial um, security, right? Here's the thing. Jesus says, this is from a Tim Keller sermon. Jesus says, crown me, crown me as king of your life or kill me. You say, boy, that's so harsh. There's nothing in between. I don't want to be, Jesus says, in your top 10 of priorities. This, I want to be number one or I can't be in there. Jesus is not something you and I add to our lives as like you have a burger, would you like fries? Yes, I'll take the fries too. It's a nice little side thing. It's a few hours a week in church. It's something I've added to him. Jesus wants to be the L word, Lord. That means master, boss, number one priority. The second man has another priority, financial security. That's understandable as a head of the household, or maybe he's a single man, I don't know. We all want that. Jesus is saying, I don't want to be number two or three. I want to be number one. So the second man is too slow. By the way, the Jews, the reason we know his dad didn't die is the Jews did not do, you may know this, the Jews didn't do embalming. You know what that is, right? They had to get the body in the ground as fast as possible. If you notice, Jesus dies on the cross. They quickly take it down. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus go to the high priest and say, can we have the body? And they let him have the body. They quickly uh, wrap him with spices and uh, strips of cloth and get him in the, in the grave before sundown, which is the end of the day, whenever sundown was at that time of the year. So they don't embalm. The second man um, is more concerned with other things than Jesus. Keep reading. Jesus says in verse 22, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Or literally it's let the dead bury the dead. You say, what does that mean? He's saying, let the spiritually, sorry, let the, yeah, the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Um, those that are spiritually, spiritually alive see the priority of God in their lives. Those that are spiritually dead do not. They see it as an add-on to our, their lives. Verse 23. So there's only so many places in the boat. That's why there's guys coming and saying, let me jump in here kind of thing. So the other, as I told you, the other gospels mentioned, there's flotilla. There's other boats going with them. Then verse 23, he got into the boat 
and his disciples followed him. Followed him into the boat. Um, let's see. Verse 24. You all know this story. Suddenly, a furious storm or tempest, if you have some translations, came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping, was asleep. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We perish. We're going to drown. We're dying. Don't you care? That's the problem. Let's read that before we move on. Okay. He got into the boat. The disciples follow him in the boat. Now, when you read verse 24, the first word, at least in NIV, is suddenly. Most storms, in California at least, don't happen this suddenly. It turns out the Sea of Galilee, if you know anything about, you know, we're at somewhere around 2,000, 2,200 foot elevation here, maybe 1,900, I don't know. You go down to the beach and you might be 10 feet above sea level, depending on how high up you are, 20 feet, 30 feet above sea level. The Sea of Galilee is in a bowl with mountains around it, and it's 600 feet, listen, below sea level, with high mountains, so that the winds sometimes suddenly come up, and it can be flat as glass, the sea, and suddenly, out of nowhere, tremendous storms. Keep in mind, some of the guys, not all, but some of the guys on the boat with Jesus are professional fishermen. Where do they fish? In the Sea of Galilee. If anybody knows that sea and the storms, it's them. And these are the same people that are freaking out. That's the Joe translation of this passage, right? So, a giant storm comes. We're about to see um, a demonstration of three things. The authority that I mentioned earlier, but in a whole new category. So far, we've seen uh, tremendous wisdom. We've seen authority to heal diseases, cast out demons. We're about to see authority over nature because he is the creator. Look at John 1, 1 and 1, 2, and you'll see that he's the creator. Also, Colossians 1, it, Jesus created everything that was created. But there's something else. I mentioned earlier, he has two natures. He is fully God and fully man. In this incident, you will see both. First, his humanity. You say, I, I didn't see that. A storm comes up, a furious storm comes up on the lake. Waves are sweeping over the boat. Can you imagine? Wind, waves, thunder, lightning, rain, maybe. And Jesus was asleep. You say, what's that? That's his humanity. Do you know how tired he was ministering to all those people on that mountain for several days? He's exhausted. I'll get some sleep on the boat. He's so sure of God's care and provision and love for him that he can sleep through a storm. If the disciples had been that sure that they almost could have enjoyed the ride like at an amusement park where you know it's scary, but you know, well, it's not really dangerous. It seems dangerous to them. Jesus is exhausted. As a human being, he got tired. He got hungry. He needed to sleep. But we're about to see 
the other side of Jesus. Keep in mind one more thing. Some people are half Italian and half Irish or half Japanese and half French. Jesus is not half God, half man. Okay? This is hard for us to understand. He's fully human 100%. 100% human, 100% God. He started out as 100% God for eons in the past. He took on the additional nature of humanity. Uh, Philippians 2 talks about that. Okay. So there's an unbelievable storm on the lake, and the disciples actually think they're going to die. So, um, yeah, we already talked about that. Okay. So... By the way, these are three, there now comes three miracles in a row that are all giving peace to the anxious. If you get anxious or worry a lot, this is your section. How bad is this storm? There are many words for storm or storms in Greek. This word, those of you that live in California and know about earthquakes, you'll be interested to learn the word he uses here for storms is a, a storm that is so violent and there's so much movement, it's a, ready for the Greek word, seismos, from which we get seismograph, which measures how, how was it a 6.4 or 9.2 or whatever. Okay, so he's going to show his power over this sort of a, uh, a calamity, if you will. So I want you to notice that the, there's so many little lessons here. I'm going to try to bring them all out for you. So the men surely spend some time bailing water, pulling in the sails, whatever you do. I'm not really a great sailor or anything, but I'm sure there's a procedure to keep water out of the boat and tie things down so that we don't lose supplies and what have you. But they're losing the battle. So they come to Jesus, which is the right place to go, in a storm. Keep in mind, I'm going to ask you the following question after we're done. What does the storm symbolize in your life? Is it a weather phenomenon or something else? You probably already know, but we'll keep moving. Um, okay. The disciples go, several of them, not one, and they wake him up, right? Isn't it amazing he's able to sleep through this? We've known, my wife and I know somebody, she lives near Sacramento, and when she's asleep, if you try to wake her up, it's almost like, is she dead? You can't, wake up, Karen. She doesn't wake up, my wife's friend. Um, an earthquake happened once, she didn't wake up. In any case, they wake him up and they say three things. And it's this, Lord, number one. Number two, single word, save. Number three, we perish. We're dying. That's the three things they say. Lord, save, we perish. Is that not a perfect sinner's prayer for an unbeliever? You don't say, hey, great teacher. You say, you call Jesus what? Lord. Number two, save me. Implying what? I can't save myself. I can't be good enough to please God. I can't pay for my own sins except in hell forever. Lord, save, we perish. I'm dying. It's a desperate cry, isn't it? It's the same as when we were unsaved and we came to Jesus for salvation. Wanted to throw that in at no extra charge. 
Jesus gets up. He's got two problems to solve. You say, well, no, there's only one problem. It's the storm. No, no. He's going to solve the first problem first before he deals with the storm. Do you see what he says? Verse 26. Ye, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why? If you've been in this Bible study for any length of time, you know that whenever there's any question in the Bible, I think we should answer it. Ye of little, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why are they so afraid? They're experienced fishermen. Well, this is no ordinary storm, Joe. This is a seismos. This is end of the world kind of storm. But why are they afraid? Because they don't know who Jesus is. It's the same for me. When I'm afraid, I forget who he is and what he can do. They don't know who he is. Keep in mind, they should have known. Why? They're Jews, all 12. They have the Old Testament, all the scriptures about the Messiah who will heal the sick. Deaf ears will hear and blind eyes will see and lame legs will walk. It's all in the Old Testament. He'd be born of a virgin. That's Isaiah. They know all this. They've seen the miracles. They heard the wisdom for three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount. They should know. They've also seen something else. When he says something's going to happen, it happens every single time. To the centurion, go home, your servant's healed. What? And then they get word that his servant was healed at the moment he said that. What's your point, Joe? What did he just say? He told them, let's go over to where? The bottom of the lake? Let's go over to the other side. If Jesus said, we're going to the other side, guess where they're going? They're going to make it. They should have known. I know if I was on the boat, would I have been Mr. Calm? No, I'd be screaming too. We're dying. Lord, save. We perish. Lack of faith. The word for why are you so afraid is not the normal word for afraid, which is phobos, from which we get phobias, right? In Greek, phobos. It's a different word that means timid. Or may I use a normal word, a modern word? Wimpy. Why are you so wimpy? Why are you wimping out? Where is your faith? You of little faith, not none, but little. In the same sentence. So first he rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. That's all verse 26. Luke explains a little more detail that when he says to the wind and the waves, be still, rebuking them, it's almost like he's scolding them, calm down, that if you know anything about water, if there's a bunch of waves and wind and everything, and it stops, the water is still going to churn back and forth, and the boat, I'm getting seasick just doing this, for a while. The way Luke describes it, and Matthew kind of does too, it's instantaneous. Boom from all that wind noise, all that water, to flat as a board, the water. Total, unbelievable miracle. Just as diseases um, respond to his authority, 
just as demons are afraid of him and respond to his authority, we're about to see that again, even the wind and the waves, which are not um, beings, right? It's just part of creation, inanimate creation. The waves aren't alive. I'm not a new ager. Oh, mother earth is alive. No, the earth is not alive, okay? Trees are alive. Water's not alive, really. A storm isn't alive. Um, by the way, I'll throw this in. Some commentators mentioned this. I don't know that I buy it. Some commentators said the reason this storm comes up, some said this, is to test their faith. Might be true. But others said this is Satan, the prince of the power of the air, whipping up the ocean because if you've read ahead, he's about to cast demon, a demon out of a guy on the other side. Maybe Satan doesn't want him to get there. I don't know that I would sell it that hard, but I thought I would throw it in there. He rebukes the wind and the waves, and it suddenly, instantly, the weather, listen, changes. I'm calling this rapid climate change. Just kidding. Can Jesus do this? At his word, right? Later on, he multiplies loaves and fish twice. Do you remember? It's another inanimate thing that the fish are dead, that just he can just create, and he can create calm. So I love their response. The men, verse 27, were amazed. And by the way, there was other people in the other boats next to them that were probably saying, what the heck just happened? The men were amazed, verse 27, and asked, what sort of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What kind of person is this? Remember my rule, if there's a question, we answer it. What kind of man is this? No kind of man could do this, right? You ever try this when it's stormy? Go outside. Stop. You'll get wet and you'll come in and be embarrassed. Jesus is unique, the God-man. That's the only kind of person that can control the wind and the waves. So in the span of a few minutes, they saw his humanity. He's conked out so tired he's asleep. He's bushed. And his deity, shh, to the waves, and they stop. Mind-blowing power. If they didn't believe who he was with the other healings, they better get a clue now, right? So... I asked you earlier, what do the storms represent? Weather phenomena or something else? The answer is the storms represent all the possible problems and bummers you and I can have in our lives. And I don't mean, oh no, we're out of butter. I mean severe health problems. Some of you have gone through them. Some of you are going through them now. I mean severe money problems, severe a crisis in your marriage or your family where people aren't talking to one another, problems at work, problems with um, all kinds of things in our lives. Each of those things, I want you to think of them as a storm, okay? Now, like the disciples, Jesus is with you in the storm. 
right? I would understand them freaking out more if he was somewhere else in Jerusalem and they're in the boat by themselves. What are we going to do? But he's right there. He said, we're going to the other side. Storms are uh, interesting for another reason. Where are these guys? They're in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Are they disobeying Jesus? No. He said, let's get in the boat. We'll go to the other side. Interestingly, a storm occurs even though they are totally in obedience to Jesus, right? There's none of them that said, no, I'm staying on this side. I'm not going. They obeyed him. They got in the boat. The point is this. If you're going through a storm in your life, probably it's not because, what did I do to deserve this? right? You might be totally obeying God. I will say this, if you are obeying God and a storm comes, it might be that Satan wants to discourage you from obeying him. See, Joe, God doesn't care about you. Look at this crisis you're in. Where's your God now? Right? Jesus is with them in the boat. Jesus is with you in the boat of your life. Okay, but could he prevent all the storms from happening? I believe he could. Well, then why doesn't he? Is he just enjoy us freaking out? No, listen. Storms, you all have faith, right? Faith is a muscle. And muscles, the thing about them is the more you use them, the more they grow. The less you lose them, they atrophy or shrink. Storms are the gymnasium of faith. Brian, I don't want to embarrass you, Brian. I won't even look at you. So in case people don't know who you are, but maybe he's on this side. You don't know. Brian went through an unbelievable storm, a crisis of faith where those of us who know him were reasonably sure he's dying. They even said so in the hospital. The next few days are crucial and then it's over. There he is. I know if you ask him when you're having a cupcake, did your faith shrink or grow during that time? He'll tell you, it grew, I've asked him this, it grew leaps and bounds. There are opportunities, storms are to trust God, to realize our own mortality and weakness, to realize his power, to learn something, to humble us, to grow. I can't explain to you why you're going through what you're going through. All I can say is, Jesus, if you're a believer, is in the boat with you. And there's a reason for this. It's a gymnasium thing, an opportunity to trust him. James verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 says, it's a weird one. It's about um, encountering trials and temptations and testing. Count it all bummer. No. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that those things produce in us maturity, growth. No gymnasium, no growth. So that's important. Um, let's see. Uh, he also says in the Gospel of John, my peace I give you. He gave it to him, didn't he? He hoped they would have had the faith to not freak out, but they said, Lord, save, we perish. Kind of interesting. Um, Lord confesses his deity, save is what they need, and we perish is them admitting, we're totally helpless here, hurry it up, right? The only other thing I'll say about the storms, 
is this. We love this story. You know why? Because the answer comes instantly. So are you in a storm, financial, health, um, interpersonal relations, um, addiction? There's a thousand storms. It could be financial problems. Listen, and you praying, you're praying. Don't expect every answer to be boom, done. Because sometimes he makes us wait. Because that too is a faith gymnasium. But eventually he comes through. How do you know that? Because... He is your father, God is, and he absolutely loves you. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. In the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, <clears throat> they tell the same story, but they add a detail. Matthew does not. He calms the storm. They're blown away, right? And they say, what kind of man is this? Mark and Luke add that they are exceedingly afraid. They were afraid of the storm, the wind, the waves, the sound, dying, drowning, the water, the boat going down. They're more afraid in Mark and Luke, in the Greek, of Jesus. They see him in a whole different power light where he's revealed a little more of his power and they're kind of like, whoa, that was a heavy duty. Um, let's see. There are scriptures, uh, Psalm 89. Listen to this. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. Listen. You rule the raging of the sea. When waves rise, rise you still them. It's a fulfillment, isn't it, here? Are these Jewish guys? Yes. Had they heard that? Probably, right? Should have remembered, but they think that's Lord meaning God the Father, not this carpenter from Nazareth. Wrong. The same. So they see his humanity. They see his deity. They see tremendous power. Uh, we already talked about that. And that. The result, seeing that sort of power, is they worship him. They're beginning to see this is no ordinary man with some really great words. In the storm, when we see who Jesus is properly, we will worry less or not at all. We give it to him and move on. I like to picture um, Jesus sitting on a throne or on the cross, however you like to see him. I prefer not the cross, but a throne in heaven. That's where he is, seated at the right hand of the Father, right? And I like to picture that my storm, my crisis, my bummer, my thing that's making me stay up nights is in a box. And I put a lid on it and I bring it to Jesus and I lay it at his feet. And I say, will you take this? And he says, of course, my child. And then I turn around, thank him and walk away. The problem is, if you're like me, you pray and you leave it at his feet. And then in the middle of the night, you go pick it up and start looking in the box. And, oh, man, what am I going to do? And you start worrying again. And then you bring it to Jesus again. Oh, please, Lord. And then you pick it up again and leave it there. He's got it, right? Oh, ye, oh, me of little faith. Um, I think we can move on now. Yeah. All right. Uh, is it time? No, it's not time for our break yet. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. 
Okay, good. Those of you on Zoom, beautiful. Uh, so, uh, okay. Mm -hmm. Storms are midterm exams. Tests that God allows. In this world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation, trouble. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Let's move on. Now they're going to get to the other side, just like he said they would. Um, let's see. Verse 28. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, and by the way, some translation have Gergesenes, Gerasenes. There's several different words to use for that area. <clears throat> this is still Israel but a lot more Gentile influence. A lot more Gentiles live there. When he arrived on the other side, two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. You got the picture? Two demon-possessed men. If you read the other uh, Gospels on this, they only mention the worst of the two, one of them. But there were two. One was a lot worse than the other. Let's see. So he goes there. They get out of the boat. No sooner are they there that uh, a demon, two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs meet him. They were so violent, no one could pass that way. Let's read the, the whole story, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 29. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs. He said to them, go. And they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Let's stop there for now. Go back to verse 28. Here they are, two demon-possessed men that are so scary, verse 28 says, that they're so violent, no, way, no one could pass that way. There are stories of people being demon-possessed that somehow have extra-normal strength to do amazingly scary things. I'm picturing people going to the near the tombs and these guys beating them up or cutting them or scaring the you know what out of them. So remember the disciples are with Jesus. He said to go to the other side. Oh no, another storm. Two demon-possessed men. Pretty scary situation. They are, I believe in the other gospels, I forgot to check this. But I believe that the one they mention in the other Gospels is naked. Why is that important? We'll get to that later. So they speak in verse 29, and this is the demon speaking. I know we did this last week. Let me just do it very quickly for those of you who weren't here or weren't watching on Zoom. Um, demon possession. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Therefore, demon possession for you is impossible. There's no way the Holy Spirit wants a roommate living with him inside of you. That's number one. Number two, for those that are unsaved, 
It takes more than just being an unbeliever that a demon can just break down the door and come in. I said last week, Dr. Walter Martin, he's passed away now, great Bible teacher. He used to say that the door knob to your soul is on the inside, meaning they don't break the door down. Stupid people open the door and let them in. You say, who would be stupid enough to let a demon in? Deuteronomy 18 talks about this. There are other places in the Bible that talk about the occult, okay? Um, Seances, past life regression, uh, demonology, fortune tellers, tarot cards, all those sorts of things are doorways to the occult where weird things can occur. Whoever these guys are, they let the demons in. And the demons literally take over the body and speak for the person through the person. All kinds of stories exist of people being possessed by demons who have this sort of a voice and sound totally different because the demon is speaking through them. Scary stuff. Not for you, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan. But it is possible. These are, this is not Satan himself. These are demons, junior Satans, if you will, fallen angels that fell before Adam and Eve fell. Okay. Mm-hmm. In Matthew 17, there's a man whose son is demon-possessed, and the man says, every time I get near water or fire, the demons try to throw my son into the fire or the water to either drown him or burn him. The devil seeks to kill and destroy, to injure, to harm us, right? Especially if we're believers. So the demons speak in verse 29, and they say, what do you want with us, son of God? Isn't that interesting? First of all, what do we have in common? What business do you have with us? And then they call him what? Son of God. Are they right? They're right. You're going to see that the demons have incredibly accurate theology. Watch. What do you want to do with us, Son of God? They know He's God in human flesh. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They know He's going to judge the whole world and that they have torture in their future. Hell, into the abyss forever right on. So you're saying they're Christians? No. They believe it all here. James says, the uh, um, no, it's not James. I think it's Christ that says, no, it is James. You believe there's one God, you do well. Listen, the demons believe and shudder, meaning with fear. They know it up here. I believe there's a place called Tokyo, don't you? I've never been there. I don't even want to go there. The fact that there's a Tokyo, and I believe it, affects my life zero on a day-to-day basis. But I also believe Jesus was the Son of God who died for my sins and rose from the dead. And because of that and my faith in him, that I have total forgiveness for sins past, present, and future. And as my Lord, he influences my life. There's something I believe, but it's more than just here. It's here. Do you see the difference? The demons believe here, son of God, they know. 
right? I almost think they call him son of God because coming from them, consider the source. If they think he's the son of God, maybe he's not, but he is. Let's take our two-minute break and stretch our aging bodies. There's all kinds of snacks back there, and you can't leave until you finish all of them. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, hang with me. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right, we're back. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're in the book of Matthew chapter 8. And we've got demon-possessed men on the shore who live in the tombs. Isn't that interesting? Where dead people are, that's where they live. Probably making it a little spookier. So they say, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come to here to torture us before the appointed time? By the way, in case you're interested, the appointed time is John. I'm sorry, John wrote it, is Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, where Jesus judges not only the world, all human beings, but all of the spiritual world, saved angels and the unsaved angels. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time. Jesus does not answer. Do you notice? Um, verse, uh, by the way, the, to answer that question, no, he hasn't, but he's got his priorities as well. We're going to find out that human beings, those of you that are animal activists might not like this, human beings are of greater value than animals. I love our animals. I love all animals. Human beings are of a higher value to God because they're made in the image of God than animals. Why are you mentioning that, Joe? Verse 30, some distance from them was a large herd of pigs feeding. The, uh, we learned from the other gospels, there's 2,000 of them, pigs. Wait, isn't this Israel? Yes. And aren't pigs unclean and Jews can't eat pork? Yes. This shows the Jewish, uh, I'm sorry, the Gentile influence in this area. There's 2,000, a big herd of 2,000 pigs, which are Old Testament unclean animals. Are you saying I can't have a ham sandwich or a bacon, lettuce, and tomato? No. For um, G Christians, you can eat whatever you want. If you don't eat pork, it can be for other reasons, but don't not eat pork because you think you're pleasing God by doing that. Um, okay, because in Mark it says he declared all foods clean. Okay, 2,000 pigs, a large herd is feeding. The picture is it's up on a mountainside with a steep incline down to a cliff down to the Sea of Galilee. Got the picture? We're about to watch the Pig Olympics for diving. So the demons say in verse 31, I want you to notice their theology. They know he's the son of God. They know he will judge. You know what else they believe in? Prayer. You say, what? They don't tell him what to do. They ask permission. They begged him. The demons begged Jesus, verse 31, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now, part of me thinks, just because you said to do that, I'm not going to do that. If you study demon possession, you find that demons, and this is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 12, they always want a body, some kind of body to inhabit. Otherwise, they're disembodied spirits. Somehow, they can't affect the physical realm as much if they, uh, if they don't have a, 
body to inhabit. So they suggest, since we know we can't beat you, you notice there's no arm wrestling, there's no fight with swords. Jesus says, one word is all he speaks, right? It's the word go. So, but they beg him, let us go into the pigs. The next best thing, at least we'll have a body. Maybe we can stampede and kill some people. So Jesus answers them and says the word, go. Verse 32, they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Wow. Question number one, is this unfair to the pigs? Those poor pigs, right? They never knew what hit them. They just crazily ran down there and all drowned. Answer, as I said, human beings are way more valuable to God than animals. There are unclean animals in Israel. He's sort of killing two birds with one stone. Question number two that has been asked, and I'll tell you right now, I don't have the answer. What happened to the demons? They live in the bottom of the lake now. Are they disembodied because the bodies died that they were in? Did the demons die? I don't think so, but I don't know. It doesn't say, but I'll tell you this, wasn't good, right? The diving competition didn't go the way they wanted it to. Um, but they're no longer in the man, the two men that were demon possessed, and that's the important thing. So they, the whole herd rushes down the steep bank into the lake and they die in the water. Wait, how many pigs did you say there were? The other gospels say 2,000. Which brings up the question, wait a minute, how many demons were in these dudes? A lot, right? A lot. Remember there's another story where they, he says to them, what is your name? And they say, legion, for we are many which would be a thousand. In this case, there's a lot of demons in these guys. They have opened the door again and again and again and again and again. That's why they're so horrific. Okay, so what does Satan do to man? He robs them of sanity. You see that in these men. He isolates them. They're living among the tombs. He makes them evil, right? Makes them scary. They have no joy of friends or family at home. Um, and he condemns them to judgment. That's what we see here. That's what Satan does. What Jesus did for these men, he will do for anyone who calls upon him. Irony. You know what irony is? Something ironic in this story. What just happened? Jesus calmed the storm. And what did the disciples say? Who is this guy, right? Ironically, the disciples who have faith say, who is this guy? Ironically, demons, the next story over, say, son of God. They know. It's not enough to know. It's got to be here and change your will and change your life. Okay, so... Um, now comes the almost the reverse punchline in the story. 
okay? The surprising end of the story. We've already seen him do miracles, so if you're reading this for the first time, you kind of figured, oh, he cast demons out before, he's going to beat these demons out of this guy somehow, these guys, and he does. The pigs is an added bonus. You go, whoa, that's a trip. Can you see the disciples' faces as the storm gets calmed, and now they watch a whole herd of pigs go flying down a mountain and swan dive into the lake and drown? they just blown away. What power, you say? Those, verse 33, who were tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Men, right? They run into town. You guys, you're not going to believe this. It was this pig's way. Wait, slow down. What happened? Those two demon-possessed weirdos that are, yes. This Jesus guy shows up, casts the demons out of them. The demons go into the pigs. 2,000 pigs just died. Now, if you're a pig farmer, that's a huge loss to your inventory, right? Huge. Okay. Just mentioning that. So they report everything, sort of like the tattletales. You're not going to believe this. In other stories, like the woman at the well in John 4, the Samaritan woman, do you remember? He reaches her. She goes into town and tells them about him. And she and the whole town come out and they all get saved. Do you remember that? So you're kind of hoping like, oh, good. It's going to really spread. The two guys are now going to be saved, the demoniacs. Um, by the way, Mark and Luke add that the town shows up and they see the demon-possessed dudes barely recognizable because they're dressed, seated calmly, and in their right minds. Almost don't look like the same person. And it says that they were exceedingly afraid of the kind of power that could change this dude. All good so far. Maybe they're all going to become believers. This is going to be awesome. Then the whole town, verse 34, went out to meet Jesus. Oh, good. They're meeting Jesus. Keep in mind, these are mostly Gentiles. Some are Jews. A lot of pagan stuff going on. When they saw him, they pleaded with him to get lost. It doesn't say that, but it says leave their region. That's what it means. Please go away. Isn't that interesting? There are people who think that are so um, over-interested in miracles. They think, oh, my sister doesn't believe. If only she could see a miracle. I know she'd believe. These people just saw a miracle. Two demon-possessed dudes are in their right mind with the disciples, with Jesus. Miracle, schmiracle. If God is not drawing you by his spirit, the miracles will go right over your head. Maybe they're concerned about the loss of revenue from the pigs. Maybe they're just fearful about something they don't understand. Mankind naturally, when we don't understand something, we're filled with fear. I don't get that. That's a little scary to me. The proper response would have been worship. Who are you? Tell us right? What must we do to be saved? Instead, they say, get lost. It's astounding to me. We don't want this kind of power in our town. And so uh, they ask him to leave their region, and presumably, it doesn't say so, but 
it does in chapter 9. He gets in the boat, goes back to Capernaum. Wait, that's the end of the trip? I'm John, Peter, Andrew, Bartholomew, and I'm saying, wait a minute, Lord, we went through that whole boat trip and that whole storm for those two demon-possessed dudes and those pigs, and now we're back. Was Jesus surprised that they said, get lost? No. He made that whole trip for that, that whole demon encounter and came back. All right, chapter 9. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, that's good. Man. Okay, I see the amen sign and the waves. Beautiful on Zoom. We're going to see even more power now. You say, wait, we've seen the sickness, pretty much any sickness. He heals all the sickness in one verse in chapter 8. The demon-possessed storms and then a herd of pigs with with the 2,000 demons. Jesus was outnumbered. Didn't matter. Just when you think it can't get more amazing, verse 1, chapter 9. As Jesus... Sorry, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. That's Capernaum. That's his headquarters. Small town, still there today on the Sea of Galilee, west side, across the lake. Some men, verse 2, brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Okay, we got to stop there because Matthew is interested in the facts, just the facts, ma'am, like Jack Webb from Dragnet. Remember that show? What he leaves out is four guys are carrying their friend, okay, on a mat, like a stretcher, if you will. And they carry him to this house where Jesus is speaking. Matthew, excuse me, leaves all this out. Pardon me. What the other gospels say is, they're there, we're here to bring our friend to Jesus. Oh, no. It's packed. Did you get tickets? No, they were sold out. There's lines out the door. They can't even get in to see him. Option one, the four guys. Let's go home and try another day. No. Our poor friend is paralyzed. Option two, let's push people out of the way. No, it's not polite. Jesus probably wouldn't like that. Option three is just ridiculous. Let's go. Oh, look, there's a stairway that leads to the roof. Let's bring him up on the roof. Take the roof apart. Where is he in the house? Okay, it looks like 23 feet from that wall. So if we go up on the roof, we can estimate where, how many roof tiles that is. We'll just take apart the roof. We'll fix it later, of course. Make a big enough hole that the four of us can lower him down with ropes somehow so that he just comes right down in front of Jesus. If you're the paralyzed man, you're probably going, you guys, let's let's try another. How about Thursday? What if you drop me, right? No, no, let's do it. You, you guys, yeah, let's do it. Okay, so they go up on the roof, they pull the tiles off the roof. We don't know whose house it was. In in Jesus of Nazareth, the movie, it's Peter's house. Isn't that interesting? We don't know. So that's just conjecture. Um, So the man has palsy or paralysis, by the way. Isaiah 
35, 5, and 6. Listen, predicting the Messiah. Listen, Jews would know this. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears, uh, deaf ears shall be unstopped. The lame, paralyzed, shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb will sing. These are things, this is on the resume of the Messiah, whoever he may be. If I claim to be in the Messiah in that era, they would expect, well, do some miracles. Well, I can't, I can't really do that. <clears throat> You're out, right? He's doing all these things. Okay. Uh, by the way, that prophecy continues. Waters shall birth for, burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. It's a Messiah prophecy. Okay. So here comes the weirdest verse in this chapter, in my opinion. Some men, verse 2, brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, what? When Jesus saw their faith. Can you see faith? No. It's not a thing you can see. It's, like, it's something that you know exists, so do I. It's like love. You can't see love. It's like the wind. You can't see the wind. You say, no, I've seen the wind, the trees blow, the grass blows, your hair blows. You're seeing invisible air moving. You're seeing the result of the wind. You're not seeing the wind. Wind is air that's invisible. Faith is invisible. Love is invisible. And yet it says when he saw their faith, what does he mean? Tremendous faith to carry this guy, the four dudes, all the way to the house and want to get him to Jesus so bad, they go up on the roof, take the roof tiles off, and lower him down. How many people's faith did he see? At least four, the four dudes, right? I would argue five. I don't think the man in the, in the mat, the paralyzed guy, is saying, no, no, you guys, take me home. I'm embarrassed. He believes too. They've seen and heard Jesus enough to know he could do this. Let's do it. He sees their faith. What's your point? If you say, well, maybe we should go to James chapter 2. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's go to James 2. We haven't done a detour yet. Um, so turn to James. If you find Hebrews toward the back of the Bible, take a right, and then you'll find James. Right before First and Second Peter and the First and Second John and all that. James chapter 2. This ties right in, I promise. I'll give you a second to find it. James 2, verse 17. Um, well, let's pick it up in 14. James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but has no works, no deeds? In other words, it's all here. I don't really do anything that proves my faith. I, I just, I believe up here, really. I believe in God. Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by evidence, action, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds. By the way, that's impossible. The deeds, what we do, proves what we believe. You can see I'm sitting on this stool with both legs up. You know what that means? Joe believes this chair can hold his weight. All my weight is on this stool. If I'm wrong, I'm going to go flying and you're all going to laugh. And, but I believe it'll hold my weight. If I was sitting like this with one leg down, you'd know he's not that sure about that stool. Faith is 
something that always is accompanied by acts, things we do that prove we have faith. Okay. Um, so these guys have faith and they did something. They bring their friend. Um, okay, so now the story takes a weird, weird, weird left turn. Because if you're reading along and you haven't read ahead, and I saw some of you read ahead, by the way. But if you haven't read ahead, you're expecting him to go rise and walk. And the guy walks and you go, eh, there's another one. Chalk that up. Healing number 7,841. But that's not what happens. When Jesus saw their faith, their plural, five, four guys, paralytic. He said, drum roll, take heart, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know, but I have a feeling the four dudes that are still on the roof looking down with the ropes, remember them, are listening. And what did he say? He said, your sins are forgiven. Thank you. That's nice, but that's not why we're here. He's paralyzed in case you didn't notice, Jesus, right? That's not why they're here. Or is it? Let's see. So he says an astounding thing. All through the Old Testament, do you know what it says about forgiving sins? Only God can forgive sins. Only God can control the waves, heal disease, raise the dead. That's still coming. Only God can forgive sins. So for a Jew to say, your sins are forgiven, <gasps> all the self-respecting Jews would say, blasphemy, absolute, unless, unless he's God, which, come on, he's a man. Take, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. Okay, we need to stop here for a second and think logically. Is the paralyzed man a believer? Well, he has faith. We know that. His friends have faith. Number two, is the paralyzed man a sinner? Duh, every human being is a sinner. Let's get that out of the way. Some are worse than others. Is he saying that the man's paralysis is because of his sin? Probably not. Okay? I want to separate his sin from sin as an overarching blanket statement. What do you mean? I mean this. In a sense, all disease, all sickness, all injuries, all deaths are a result of sin. Adam's, Eve's. And we inherit SIN positive. It's a disease like HIV positive. We're all SIN positive. So that's why we can get sick. We can die. We can get injured. We can be hurt. Adam and Eve, before they fell, no way could any of those things happen. So in a blanket statement, yes, sin is the reason he's paralyzed. Now the question comes, you mean his sin, the paralyzed guy? Not necessarily. Right? Okay. Point number two. Jesus says to the man, be of good cheer. Cheer up. Your sins are forgiven. I learned two things from that. And I'm not the only one. Number one, be of good cheer. Cheer up. Means the man is also suffering from depression. Sadness. Great sadness. You mean because he's paralyzed. 
No. Because if he said, be of good cheer, get up and walk, I've solved your, your bummer. That's one thing. The man is drowning in sorrow over his sin. How do you know that? Because he says, be of good cheer. I'm going to solve your problem now. The biggest problem is not your paralysis. It's your sin. The biggest problem is always spiritual, not physical. Listen, would Jesus forgive the sins of a man who wasn't sorry for his sins? Answer, no way. No way. What if the man said, I'm not even sorry? Now we got a problem. The man is His friends are taking him there to get him healed of his paralysis. The man knows I've been drowning in sorrow over my sin. Remember Matthew 5? First beatitude, blessed. Who's really blessed, Jesus? The poor in spirit, the ones who mourn over their sin. This guy's mourning over his sin. The reason I know is he says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Let's keep reading. At this, some of the teachers of the law, that's the Pharisees, the scribes, you know, the religious leaders, the hypocrites, the Jewish head honchos who hate Jesus, who are jealous of Jesus, who are legalists and pretty much mostly phonies. The teachers of the law said to themselves, praise God, the man's sins are forgiven. Did you hear that, Harold? No, they don't say that, do they? This fellow is blaspheming, but they don't. Say it out loud. They just think it. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, because they're thinking in their heart these things. What's that? Another proof of his deity. Are you making a list? What do you mean? Omniscience, the ability to know everything. He read their thoughts. Do you know that God can read your thoughts. Somebody up up front went, because they knew what I was going to say. God can read your thoughts. Be careful what you think. Do you catch yourself like I do starting to think stuff that, and I go, I don't want to think that, Lord. Pull me back to where I need to be. He knows what they're thinking. So, knowing their thoughts, he said, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Wait, what what evil thoughts? What are they thinking? He's a man. He's not God. He's not the Messiah. Therefore, he's blaspheming, forgiving sin. Is that evil? Yes, because it's wrong, 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 and wrong, right? He is God. He can forgive sin, we're about to see. Has that authority. So this is a whole new realm here. We've seen his power over storms, disease, demons, Now, the wind, the waves, all that storm. Now, authority over sins. Authority over men's eternal destiny. Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? So here comes his logic. And this might surprise you, so listen up. Are you awake? Say amen. Amen. Verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? So there's a question. We always answer the question. Which is easier to say? Imagine you're here. I'm sorry for this bad analogy, but I'm Jesus. There's a guy here that's all paralyzed, paralyzed and can't move at all. His friends lowered him through the roof. And I ask you, which is easier to say? 
Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. The answer is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because you can't prove it. There, his sins are forgiven. And you're looking going, looks the same to me. Sins being forgiven is not something that you see visibly, right? It happens in the spiritual realm. Could God see the sins being forgiven? Absolutely. Angels? Yes. Humans? No. We don't have those kind of eyeballs. So it's easier to say that because you can't prove it. But it would be harder to say, rise and walk, because if he doesn't walk, you're going to go, you're a fraud. Let's go, Harold. But I'm going to turn that on his head and show you because he's about to heal the man, isn't he? And make him walk to prove, look, if I can do that, I can do the other harder thing. Because listen, I misspoke on purpose. What's the easier thing to say? The easier thing for Jesus is to say, rise and walk. Why is that? Because what did it cost Jesus for that man's sins to be forgiven. Just like all the Old Testament saints and believers in the past who were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, who are saved by the Messiah's sacrifice, you with me, on the cross. He, this is before the cross, a year or two before the cross, maybe more. Jesus knows your sins are forgiven. God knows he's gonna die on the cross two years and six months from now. The sins are forgiven. What does it cost Jesus? A painful, torturous, embarrassing, bloody death. Which, which is easier? It appears the answer was what I said before. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Not for Jesus, way more costly. When you understand, and I understand how much it cost him on the cross to suffer that much, for to pay your penalty and mine, we ought to have that sense not only of awe and reverence, but of, I owe this guy everything. The man and the guys on the roof, I bet, for sure, maybe not the man, the paralyzed man. The guys on the roof are thinking, what did he say? Your sins are forgiven. We're here for a healing, right? <clears throat> they don't understand. Jesus wants to take care of the biggest problem first, because that's the biggest problem. If indeed the man's sins are forgiven, biblically, I can tell you they're forgiven forever. And the man has eternal life at that point. You with me? How good is that? Huge. If, on the other hand, he's just healed physically and he's 40 years old, he might live another 35 or 40 years and he's going to die. And it's a very temporary blessing. So do you see that the forgiveness of sins is way bigger, more important um, to God and it ought to be to us? Uh Jesus's response, listen to this, to faith, he saw their faith, theirs, and the man is what? Forgiveness. When he saw your faith, the moment you came to faith in Jesus, not halfway, not two-thirds, but 100%, and you asked him to come into your life as Lord and Savior, he saw your faith, and in the same way he said, maybe you didn't hear it, be of good cheer, my daughter, be of good cheer, my son, your sins are forgiven. The biggest problem you have is not your disease or your money problems or your loneliness or your addiction or your depression or your fear. The biggest problem is your sins. He takes care of the biggest problem. Okay. 
as I've done before, you're probably getting sick of it. Who is this guy? We don't know his name. That's true. But you know who it is? It's you. It's me. Any unbeliever. Because whether you know it or not, maybe they didn't take tiles off a roof, but your friends brought you to Jesus. They told you, your mother, your father, somebody prayed for you, and they brought you to Jesus. And eventually you came to faith in him. And sin had you all paralyzed and shriveled up to where you thought you were living, but it was actually a living death. You could do nothing to serve him in that condition. You weren't home. You were away from God. Now read. So he said to the paralyzed man, oh, sorry, verse six, but I want you to know that the son of man has, key word in Matthew, authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. I love how just simple verse seven is. So the man got up and went home. We've said before that if your legs were paralyzed for years, maybe decades, there would need to be physical therapy, crutches, braces. You need to learn to walk again, not with Jesus. He created whole new muscles, tendons, um, nerves, bones, everything. Rise and walk. And the man, I think, jumped up. And where did he go? Home. What a beautiful picture of salvation. Verse 8. When the crowd heard this, they were filled with awe, proper response. But that's not enough. And they praised God. That's enough. Who had given such authority to man. That's the proper response. They praised God. You have to see if you're there in that crowd, and you are because you're with me and we're seeing it in our mind's eye. You have to see that God had given the authority. Who is this guy? Maybe he's the God man. Maybe God has made himself, in a sense, visible for us to be in our midst. No wonder in John 6, they want to forcibly make him the king. You're our guy. We could defeat any army with you. You've got Superman power. And Jesus steps away, does not not want that. He's not coming mainly for these healings. He's coming to teach, and he's mainly coming to die for the sins of the world. Why? Because that's the biggest problem. Par paralysis, if he healed the guy, he's going to die of his last injury or disease someday. But now he's going to live forever. Beautiful story. Um, now I'm looking at my notes because I probably forgot to say 20 things. I always do. Um, he shows his omniscience. He shows his ability to heal again, but to uh, read people's thoughts, to see faith, and to heal. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. He knows what your thoughts are. He can read your mind. Um, we already thought about that. Every sin is a sin against God, Psalm 51.4. David says, against you and you alone have I sinned, even though he sinned against Bathsheba and her husband and his wife or wives, right? Um, we are just about out of time. Let's introduce the next story, and then we'll uh, pray and get out of here. But the proper response, isn't it, is to be filled with awe, 
praising God who had given such authority to men. And the guys got busy fixing the roof pronto. Amen? Probably put solar up there just to... Okay. Verse 9. Okay. I'm not going to tell you the answer to this question, but I'm going to raise it. Look at verse, this little story. We've had all these healings and healings and healings and healings and amazing things. Why is this weird story here now? There's a really good reason. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. What? No miracle? No fancy schmancy. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And the Pharisees aren't going to like that. But the context has been all about Jesus's authority, 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 healing, power over the waves, demons, power to forgive sins. Why is this here? To find out the answer, you have to come back next Tuesday night. Let's pray and we'll get out of here. Thank you, Father, that the God we serve, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has unlimited, tremendous power over every single storm we could encounter. There is nothing too big for God, too big for Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that, God. So we ask the question, how big is my God? And the answer is beyond calculation. Therefore, help us to not be timid, ye of little faith, but instead to trust you through the storms, to have the faith to bring people in prayer or in our words to Jesus for healing, maybe spiritual healing, the most important kind. And lastly, God, we see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and we bow in submission. And as we said the day we were saved, Lord, save, we perish. And you responded with forgiveness, with grace, with gifts, with eternal life. Indeed, Father, we owe you everything. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with great thanksgiving. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone on the opposite side of the room. They're waiting to see if you'll say hello. Those of you on Zoom, thanks for being here. Have a great night. God bless.